Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. What would you do if you found a woman's severed head in your freezer? You might scream or call the police. When Carol Bundy found a dead woman's head in her freezer, she put makeup on it. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Serial Killers. Today we're going to continue our deep dive into the life of Carol Bundy, who helped her boyfriend Douglas Clark murder seven women in Los Angeles. For this, the pair earned the nickname the Sunset Strip Killers. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Serial Killers on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network, or on our website, Parcast.com. Carol Bundy assisted Douglas Clark in sexually assaulting a young girl and murdering seven women over the course of two months from May 31st to July 31st of 1980. She was found guilty of murdering one of these women. She put makeup on a murdered victim's severed head so Clark could play out his sick necrophilic fantasies. And she helped him dispose of the women's bodies near highways around Los Angeles. By August of 1980, Carol was ready to kill on her own. She murdered her ex-boyfriend, Jack Murray, and cut off his head to keep police from identifying him. But just days later, she confessed to everything. Let's pick up in April of 1980, when Douglas attempts to act on his murderous urges. On April 27, 1980, Douglas Clark attempted to murder Charlene Anderson on DeLongpre Avenue in Hollywood. He lured her into his car. Then he stabbed her in the back, neck, arms, and torso. But she managed to escape. Clark peeled off DeLongpre Avenue in his blue station wagon and drove to the house of his girlfriend, Carol Bundy. He wanted to wash his blood-stained clothes and knife at her place. This was Carol's first chance to confront Clark. He had confided in Carol about his murderous fantasies before, 
But now, it was clear he was attempting to turn those fantasies into reality. But instead of calling the police, Carol decided to cover for Clark. She washed his knife for him in the kitchen sink. She also lied to her son, Chris, and told him that Clark was in a motorcycle accident. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In last week's episode, we discussed how Carol used denial as a way of coping with the trauma of being raped and abused by her own father. She was also likely using denial in this instance to avoid processing the horrific nature of Clark's actions. Carol continued to live in denial even as Clark's excuses grew increasingly outrageous. A few nights after he attempted to kill Charlene, Clark arrived at Carol's house once again covered in blood. Carol made excuses for Clark and told her sons that Clark had fought off a man who was trying to steal his car. However, Clark took 10-year-old Chris aside and told him that he had killed a man in a bar fight. Carol was in so much denial that she did nothing when Clark told her he was going to kill her son, Chris. As Carol stood by and watched, Clark told Chris to go get a knife. Chris was terrified. He had overheard Clark threatening to kill him and had no idea if he was going to go through with it. So Chris pretended to look for Clark's knife and then announced he couldn't find it. Clark grabbed Chris, held him down on his knee, and shoved a comb against Chris's spine. With Chris still pinned down, Clark casually mentioned to Carol that he could plunge a knife into Chris's heart from this angle. Carol's only reaction was to confirm that he could kill her son that way. And then she sent Chris to bed. While it's almost impossible to believe that Carol would stand by and do nothing as Clark threatened to murder her son, it's an example of how much denial she was in about Clark and his behavior. Time magazine author Maya Solovitz has studied parents who send their children to reform programs rife with abuse and notes, quote, Many parents refuse to believe their own children's claims of such abuse or minimize their seriousness even when the abuse is officially documented, because it would be psychologically too painful for them to believe that their choice to send their children to the program caused harm, end quote. Carol clearly couldn't bring herself to defend her son when he was in danger. Clark's abuse of Chris only escalated in the spring of 1980. He regularly beat the young boy with a metal-studded belt and punched him in the stomach and kidneys. Chris pleaded for his mother to break up with Clark. Her only response was to slap her son in the face. As we discussed in last week's episode, abuse survivors who can't admit their parents were abusive are more likely to go on to abuse their own children. At this point, Carol was perpetuating the cycle of abuse she had experienced as a child. Just as her parents had abused her, she was now actively neglecting and abusing her own sons. And Carol's abuse and neglect becomes even more horrific in light of recent studies and developments of the effects of CTE, the same type of brain damage that affects athletes who suffer from repeated blows to the head. In these clips, Dr. Javier Cardenas explains how abusers can cause permanent, deteriorating brain damage in their victims by inflicting violent head injuries. That force causes the brain to move within the skull. When it moves within the skull, it can bash up against the skull and it can cause tearing of blood vessels, it can cause damage to the brain tissue. 
after many, many years of being abused. The similarities between this population and the professional athlete are astounding. Carol didn't just abuse her own sons. She also helped Clark manipulate and abuse an 11-year-old neighbor named Teresa, who lived in Carol's apartment complex. In the spring of 1980, Carol befriended Teresa and brought her over to play with her sons. Teresa's guardians frequently let Carol babysit the young girl. They had no idea that Carol was helping Clark groom the child. One day in the spring of 1980, Carol lured Teresa into her bathroom so that Clark could sexually abuse her. Carol's willingness to abuse Teresa may have been connected to Carol's own childhood sexual abuse. It's important to note that most child sexual abuse victims go on to live normal, productive lives. But a 2012 study by the Australian Institute of Criminology found that victims of child sexual abuse were five times more likely to commit a crime than the general population. Forensic psychologist Margaret Cudiyar suggests that this study shows how important early and consistent intervention is for child sexual abuse victims. She suggests psychologists should be, quote, not just focusing on the trauma of the sexual abuse, but also teaching them about positive sexuality, just in terms of developing the healthier ideas of what a sexual relationship is and respect, end quote. As you may recall, Carol Bundy's ex-partner, Richard Geis, felt Carol needed psychological help to deal with her father's sexual abuse. By the spring of 1980, she was now helping Clark groom and sexually abuse 11-year-old Teresa. Clark abused Teresa for weeks in the spring of 1980 before drugging and attempting to rape her. Fortunately, she screamed loud enough for the neighbors to hear and managed to get away from Clark. Somehow, Carolyn Clark kept Teresa from telling anyone about the sexual abuse and attempted rape. This left Clark free to fulfill his next fantasy. He didn't want to just rape young girls. His horrific dream was to murder a girl in the process of raping her so he could feel her die. Clark confided his fantasies to Carol. When she eagerly embraced his twisted worldview, he knew that he had found the perfect accomplice. Clark easily convinced Carol to buy them matching guns. She ordered twin 25 caliber Raven automatic pistols from the Diamond Pawn Shop and picked them up on May 16, 1980. But Carol wasn't truly happy in her relationship with Clark. She was upset that he no longer wanted to have sex with her. He regularly humiliated her by taking her to clubs and abandoning her to have sex with other women. He also took Carol to pick up sex workers and made her pay. As we discussed in last week's episode, abusers will often purposely neglect their victims in order to break down their self-confidence. This is likely what Clark was doing to Carol. On Memorial Day weekend, Clark continued to neglect Carol by taking an old girlfriend to visit his parents instead of her. Feeling abandoned, Carol had dinner with an ex and confided that she was going to send her sons away. It's possible that Carol was demonstrating a latent protective instinct towards her children, but it's also possible she just wanted her kids out of the way so she could focus entirely on her toxic relationship with Clark. On May 31st, 1980, Carol scratched her new Buick while parking. She decided the car was too large and cumbersome to drive with her limited vision and bought herself a blue 1976 Datsun. She let Clark drive both cars. Perhaps because he now had access to two cars, Clark now felt confident enough to carry out his first murder. 
That same evening, on May 31st, Clark drove out to the Sunset Strip and picked up Marnette Comer, a 17-year-old runaway from Sacramento. When Marnette climbed into the car, Clark pulled out his pistol. Marnette kicked at him in a desperate bid to save her life, fracturing the gear stick. She wasn't able to get away, and Clark shot her three times. The teen died in the car. Clark drove out to Foothill Boulevard. He dragged Marnette's body from the car, then cut her stomach open so she would decompose more quickly. He stripped off Marnette's fuchsia underwear as a trophy and threw her body into the ravine. Clark returned to Carroll's the next morning, on June 1st. She noticed her new car had a fractured gear shift and an indentation on the passenger side door panel. Clark claimed he was cleaning his gun in the car when it accidentally went off. Carol chose to believe him. However, it's likely she knew he was lying since she finally decided to get her kids out of Los Angeles. A week later, on June 9th, Carol sent her sons to their paternal grandparents' home in the Midwest. She could now focus all of her energies on her unhealthy relationship with Clark. On June 11, 1980, Clark took the Buick to cruise the Sunset Strip in search of victims. He soon spotted two teenagers sitting on a bench in front of the All-American Burger. 16-year-old Cynthia Chandler and 15-year-old Gina Morano were stepsisters who had run away from their home in Huntington Beach earlier that spring. Clark invited the girls into the Buick and drove them to a secluded parking lot. Clark engaged them in casual chit-chat on the drive over and learned that the girls had made a new friend named Mindy. But Clark's friendly demeanor changed abruptly after they parked in an abandoned lot. Clark ordered Gina to stare out the window as he pinned Cynthia down and sexually assaulted her. As soon as Gina turned her head, Clark pulled out his gun and shot her behind her right ear. Cynthia struggled to break free of Clark's grip. He shot her in the head and chest. He then shot Gina in the head a second time. At four in the afternoon, he covered the dead teenage girls in blankets and drove to a garage he had rented in Burbank. No one saw him drag the girls' bodies into the garage. Clark raped Cynthia's and Gina's corpses. He then drove to Carol's apartment and left her a note saying that he was driving the Buick over to his girlfriend Lydia's house. Carol needed the Buick for shopping, so she drove to Lydia's to swap cars. When she got into the Buick, she found Clark's duffel bag full of bloody clothes, a bloody blanket, and bloody paper towels. Carol knew now with absolute certainty that Clark was a killer. The question was, what was she going to do about it? We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. 
and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now the story continues. On the afternoon of June 11, 1980, Carol Bundy discovered her boyfriend Douglas Clark's bloody clothes in the back of her car and realized he was a killer. But instead of calling the police, Carol decided to help Clark cover up the murders. She took the bag to an empty laundromat and washed the girl's clothes, throwing out the blood-soaked blankets. Around 10.30 on June 11th, Clark drove back to the Burbank garage where he had stored Gina's and Cynthia's bodies. He raped the teens' corpses again, then dumped their bodies over the Ventura Freeway's forest lawn off-ramp. Clark went back to Carol's place and told her everything. Although Carol had already found Clark's bloody clothes, the confession still rattled her. She began to wonder if she should finally call the police. Just before 1 p.m. on June 12th, a state highway worker discovered the girls' bodies. At 8.45 in the evening, the police held a press conference to discuss the murders. When Carol saw the news that evening, something triggered in her. She realized that she really did need to call the police. The night of June 12th, Carol called detectives and warned them that she was scared her boyfriend had killed the two girls she had heard about on the news. Detectives pressed Carol for more information, but Clark's psychological hold on Carol was too strong for her to reveal the details she knew the police needed to identify him. Carol told the detectives that her name was Betsy and that Clark's name was Don. These were actually the names Carol and Clark used when they answered swinger ads. Carol also confessed that she had found Clark's bloody clothes in her car, but she lied about the make of the car and said it was a Plymouth. The detective on the phone could tell Carol was holding back and refused to give her additional information about the murders. So Carol asked if one girl had been shot twice in the head and the other in the head and chest. She also mentioned her boyfriend may have used the bodies in a sexual manner. The detective responded that he still couldn't give Carol more information unless she told him her boyfriend's full name. Carol complained that the detective wasn't being helpful and hung up. The next day, on June 13th, Clark decided that it wasn't enough to confess his murders to Carol. He wanted her to see the victim's burial sites. He first drove Carol to where he had dumped Gina's and Cynthia's bodies near the Disney Animation Studios. He then drove her to the ravine where he had hidden Marnette Comer's body. Clark made it clear to Carol that she was also in danger. He claimed that he had no plans to kill her at the moment, but that he still might. He also warned Carol that if she ever thought of turning him in, he would kill her boys. This behavior isn't exclusive to serial killers like Doug Clark. According to Family Tree, an organization dedicated to overcoming intimate partner violence, it's not uncommon for abusive partners to make threats against a partner's children to keep them from leaving an abusive relationship. Here, Clark used threats of violence to keep Carol around. Once Clark felt confident that Carol wouldn't turn him in, he decided to test her again. He wanted to see if she would kill alongside him. A week later, on the evening of June 20th, Carol and Clark drove down to Hollywood and spotted a teenager who told them her name was Kathy. 
Clark offered to pay Kathy for sex and coaxed her into the car. He drove them behind a gas station on Franklin Avenue. When Kathy wasn't looking, Clark signaled to Carol to shoot the teen. But Carol froze. Frustrated, Clark then gestured for Carol to hand him her pistol. She passed Clark the gun, and he shot Kathy himself. The teen was mortally wounded, but still breathing. Clark yelled at Carol to strip off Kathy's clothes and put a blanket over her. He was flustered that things hadn't gone smoothly. Carol, on the other hand, was strangely calm. Psychologist David Eagleman explains, quote, What happens in a really scary situation is that all the non-essential processes like that get shut down, and your whole brain, or as much of your processing power as you have, gets devoted to this one thing going on, end quote. Unlike Clark, Carol was likely able to stay calm by remaining entirely focused on the situation at hand, disposing of the body. Clark drove down the Hollywood freeway towards Santa Clarita, then pulled off onto a country road near Magic Mountain Amusement Park. He and Carol hid Kathy's body under some vegetation and drove home. The next day, June 21st, Clark took Carol and his other girlfriend Lydia's 11-year-old son Kevin to a coin-operated car wash to wash away Kathy's blood. When Kevin asked Clark about the blood in the car, he told Kevin that he had hit a cat. Lydia learned about the outing and was furious that Clark had introduced Kevin to one of his other girlfriends. She kicked Clark out of her apartment, and Clark moved into Carol's new apartment in Burbank. That same evening, on June 21st, Clark went hunting for new victims. Disturbingly, Carol decided to assist him by preparing a kill bag for his outing, which consisted of a knife, paper towels, liquid cleanser, plastic bags, and rubber gloves. Clark drove around Hollywood looking for a victim and soon spotted three sex workers. Two of the sex workers, Exie Wilson and Karen Jones, were friends. Clark waited until Exie was alone, then talked her into getting into his car. As Exie climbed into the passenger seat, she mentioned that this was her first day in Los Angeles. Sadly, it was also her last. Clark drove Exie to an empty parking lot and shot her in the back of the head. Clark drove behind a closed Sizzler restaurant and stripped Exie of her clothes and jewelry. In a new disturbing twist, he took out his buck knife and sawed off Exie's head. He wrapped Exie's head in a plastic bag and left her bleeding body on the pavement. Clark realized that Exie's friend Karen and the third sex worker could identify him and drove back to Hollywood. He found Karen and coaxed her into the car. Somehow, she didn't notice Exie's blood in the front passenger seat, or her severed head in the back seat. Clark drove Karen to an isolated spot near Burbank Studios and shot her. He robbed her corpse of her cash and valuables, then shoved Karen's body out of the car. Then he drove to Carol's new Burbank apartment and stuck Exie's decapitated head in the freezer. Carol hadn't moved into the new apartment just yet, so it was a safe, private place for Clark to stash his victim's remains. Clark then drove back to Hollywood to locate the third sex worker, who could potentially identify him. But thankfully, he wasn't able to find her. So he drove to Carol's old apartment to brag to her about his latest murders. Instead of being horrified, Carol was thrilled that he was continuing to confide in her. She felt that they now shared a close bond. But Carol wasn't the only one Clark wanted to brag to about the murders. 
On June 22nd, Clark thumbed through the phone book he had taken from Gina, one of his teen murder victims, and called up her friend, Mindy Cohen. Clark told Mindy that he was a detective from the Los Angeles Police Department and asked if he could talk to her about the murdered girls, Cynthia and Gina. Mindy didn't know the teens were dead and began crying. Clark apologized for upsetting her and asked if she knew the girls were sex workers. He then told her that he wanted to come over to interview her face to face. Unaware of how much danger she was in, Mindy explained that she was babysitting her younger siblings. Clark said he would contact her another time. When Mindy hung up, it occurred to her that a real detective wouldn't have given her so much information about an ongoing investigation. She realized she might have just been talking to Cynthia and Gina's killer. Frightened, she contacted the police who wiretapped her phone. When Carol learned that Clark was calling up people connected to his murder victims and giving his name as Detective Clark, she began to wonder if he wanted to get caught. Psychologist Stanton Samenow explains that the idea that criminals want to be caught is nothing more than a popular myth. What actually happens is that successful criminals become overconfident, and this leads them to make foolish or reckless mistakes. Clark promised Carol that if he was caught, he would take all the blame. He assured her that no one would believe she was a killer, since she looked like an ordinary housewife from the valley, driving around town in a station wagon. Carol liked Clark's description of her as an all-American, wholesome housewife, and in late June, she felt reassured that Clark wasn't going to get them caught. A few days later, Carol went to her new Burbank apartment to meet Clark. There, she immediately found Exie's frozen head on the counter. Instead of being repulsed, Carol was mesmerized. Clark twirled Exie's head by her hair and bragged that he had sexually abused her head while taking a shower. Carol refused to be put off by this. As usual, she made use of interpretive denial. She decided that Clark must have actually taken the head to mislead the police into looking for freaks. She couldn't bring herself to admit that Clark simply enjoyed raping his murder victim's severed head. That same week, Clark realized it was too risky to keep this kind of evidence in the apartment. So on June 26th, he told Carol that they had to get rid of Exie's head. Carol had seen a box that looked like a treasure chest at a Newberry store on Sherman Way. She decided that this would be perfect for disposing of a head. Bizarrely, Clark told Carol he wanted the head to look nice before they got rid of it. So Carol sat at the kitchen table with Exie's frozen head and applied makeup. But then it occurred to Clark that Carol's fingerprints would be on the makeup, so he ordered Carol to wash the head clean in the kitchen sink. On the night of June 26, Clark and Carol drove to an alley off of Hoffman Street. Carol tossed the box containing Exie's head out of the Buick. At one o'clock the next morning, Jonathan Caravello found his parking spot blocked by a wooden box. He looked inside and was horrified to discover Exie's head wrapped in a pink t-shirt and jeans. By June 27th, detectives had figured out that a serial killer had used the same gun to murder Cynthia Chandler, Gina Morano, Exie Wilson, Karen Jones, and Marnette Comer. The press dubbed the killings the Sunset Slayings. Worried that police might connect him to the killings, Clark sold the Buick to a co-worker who was moving out of state and gave up his garage in Burbank. However, he kept a painting of a ski scene with Gina Morano's bloodstains and hung it in Carol's living room. 
The police investigation was also making it more difficult for Clark and Carol to find new victims. Tensions were high, and the couple fought constantly. Clark ramped up his verbal abuse, calling Carol stupid and dumb. He also refused to have sex with Carol unless they were having a threesome or sexually abusing their 11-year-old neighbor. Hurt by Clark's verbal abuse and neglect, Carol called her former partner, Richard Geis, and confessed to him that she was killing people. Carol hung up, then realized Geis could send her to prison. She called Geis back and claimed she was just writing a story about murder. Fortunately for Carol, Geis believed her. On July 21st, Clark brought a dancer named Nancy Smith to live with them in Carol's apartment. For Carol, the introduction of another woman likely felt like an enormous betrayal. Just six days later, on July 27th, she decided she could no longer cope with Clark's abuse and the stress of life as a serial killer's accomplice. She decided to kill herself. She wrote a suicide note listing all her problems with Clark, as well as with her old boyfriend, Jack Murray. She took all the blame, writing, quote, What is wrong with me? I screw up everyone I love or whoever cared for me, end quote. As we've seen in past episodes, it's not uncommon for victims to blame themselves for their abuser's actions. Although Clark was killing people and abusing Carol, she blamed herself for everything. Carol wrote in the note that she planned to kill herself at the Grist Mill restaurant. She then called the Valley Medical Center, where she worked, and told her co-workers that she was about to commit suicide. Carol climbed into her Datsun and injected herself with 1,250 units of insulin and 100 milligrams of Librium, a sedative used to combat anxiety. She swallowed another 100 milligrams of Librium in tablet form. Overdosing on insulin would cause Carol's blood sugar to drop to dangerously low levels, and overdosing on Librium would be enough to potentially put her into a coma. Together, they made an even more dangerous drug cocktail. Before the drugs could kick in, Carol drove to the Grist Mill restaurant. There, she waited to die. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to our story. On July 27, 1980, Carol Bundy wrote a note saying she would kill herself at the Grist Mill restaurant and called her workplace to tell them she was committing suicide. Carol injected herself with insulin and Librium, then drove to the Grist Mill restaurant. She passed out, but she was soon revived by paramedics. A co-worker at Valley Medical Center had taken Carol's suicide threat seriously and called Clark. He found Carol's note and swiftly called paramedics. The paramedics discovered Carol unconscious at the parking lot and took her to the hospital, saving her life. Four days later, on July 31st, Carol came to. For some reason, she didn't call Clark and ask him to pick her up from the hospital. Instead, she called her old boyfriend, Jack Murray. Despite their on-and-off affair, neither could seem to break contact with the other. However, after Carol got back to her apartment on July 31st, she patched things up with Clark. They must have resolved things quickly, because the next day, Carol was once again helping Clark sexually abuse their 11-year-old neighbor, Teresa. On August 1st, she took Polaroid photos of Teresa and Clark in bondage gear. But Carol was no longer completely satisfied in her relationship with Clark. After seeing Jack at the hospital, Carol wanted to revive their affair. Carol met up with Jack the next day, 
August 2nd, but he told her he finally wanted to end things for good. Carol didn't like the idea of losing the ex-boyfriend she had been obsessed with, so she suggested they sleep together while sexually abusing Teresa. By this point, Carol clearly considered pedophilia and abuse to be appropriate sexual activities. Horrifically, Jack agreed to Carol's plan and was ready and willing to sexually abuse a child. So Carol brought the little girl to Jack's van. Carol ordered Teresa to strip. As Jack was molesting the little girl, Carol suddenly changed her mind. She declared that Teresa belonged to Clark, and Carol and Teresa left. It's interesting to note here that Carol wasn't concerned about the fact that she was facilitating the sexual abuse of a child. She was only worried about Clark's feelings. Despite her concern for Clark, Carol didn't want to give up her relationship with Jack either. So two nights later, on August 4th, Carol met Jack at his regular bar, Little Nashville, and asked him to step out into the parking lot. She opened the trunk of her car and showed him her gun and the kill bag before telling him all about murdering young teens with Clark. She asked Jack if he could hide her from Clark. Jack promised they could talk about everything later that night after the bar closed. Jack went into the bar and immediately told a group of people about Carol's confession. He didn't take her seriously, though. Instead, he assumed that Carol had made everything up in a desperate bid for his attention. Meanwhile, Carol realized how foolish she had been to tell Jack about the murders. She feared that Clark would think less of her for confiding in Jack. Even worse, Jack could put her in prison for life if he told anyone. At 1.30 in the morning, Carol and Jack met up so they could talk. Carol suggested they sleep together, and they drove to Barbara Ann Street off of Sherman Way. Once they parked, Jack remarked that he hoped Carol would bring Teresa over the next time. This was the last straw for Carol. Not only could Jack potentially tell the police about Carol, he preferred sexually abusing a child to being with her. Carol told Jack to lie on his stomach. She placed her gun against the back of Jack's skull and pulled the trigger. When Carol checked his pulse, it was still steady. So she shot him again in the side of the head and stabbed him a number of times with a large knife. Carol decided to cut pieces of Jack's buttocks off to make the murder look like a psycho had committed it. She also realized the bullets in Jack's head could be traced, so she sawed off his head with her knife. Carol placed Jack's head in a plastic bag and walked a few blocks over to her parked Dotson. She placed Jack's head in the back seat of her car, then used a payphone to call Clark and tell him about the murder. Clark simply told Carol to come home. When she arrived, she found paramedics treating Clark's friend Nancy for an epileptic seizure. Carol suspected Nancy had picked up the extension telephone and overheard her discussion about killing Jack. Once the paramedics left and Nancy was sedated, Carol proudly showed off Jack's head. Clark told her to wrap it in a blanket, and the two of them got into the Datsun to look for a place to toss it. The sun was rising over the Los Angeles mountains when Clark spied a green trash bin. Clark remembered it was garbage pickup day, so he ordered Carol to throw Jack's head in the bin. Carol complied, and they drove away. On August 9th, police found Jack's headless body in his van. They also discovered a shell casing on the van's floor, which led them to suspect that Jack's head was cut off to hide ballistic evidence. Carol thought that Clark would be impressed that she had killed Jack. Instead, she was devastated when he told her he was moving in with a new girlfriend named Tammy Spangler. 
After Clark left, Carol called her old partner, Richard Geis, and confessed to Jack's murder. Still thinking that Carol was writing a story, Geis told her she called it a bad time and hung up. The next morning, on August 11th, Carol went to work and called Geis again. This time, he bluntly told her he didn't want to hear from her ever again. Distraught, Carol cornered her boss and another nurse and broke down. She told them that she had murdered Jack and insisted she was going to turn herself in. Her boss immediately called the police, but Carol left before the police arrived. Carol drove to the Jurgens factory where Clark worked. She offered him money to leave town, but he told her to leave him alone. Stung by Clark's latest rejection, Carol went home and gathered all of Clark's murder trophies. These included the bullet that killed Gina Morano, underwear from Gina and Marnette, and Kathy's high heels and shirt. Carol then called the police to confess to them directly. She called the Burbank Homicide Division, but was transferred to the Northeast Division, where she reached Detective Kilgore. Carol was so eager to confess that Kilgore initially thought Carol was a prank call. But as she gave details of the killings, Kilgore realized, to his shock, that Carol was telling him the truth. The police arrested Clark at his workplace on August 12th, then took him to Carol's apartment. Clark and the police walked in just as Carol was being arrested. When Detective Landgren tried to read Carol her Miranda rights, she kept confessing, drowning him out. She also took the detectives to Clark's bedroom and showed them a photo album containing nude pictures of Clark and Teresa. At the station, Carol stated she would finally exercise her right to remain silent. But when she sat down with Detective Gary Broda, she couldn't stay quiet. She told Broda about everything. The murders, the pedophilia, the necrophilia. She described how much she enjoyed killing, comparing it to riding a roller coaster. She even told Broda that he looked like Jack and that she'd like to have sex with him. Meanwhile, Clark was taken to the county jail and booked for child molestation. Police found Clark's guns at his workplace, including the two Raven pistols that had been used in the murders. And when they uncovered the location of Clark's old Burbank garage, they found a bloody boot print that matched Clark's work boots. Police also tracked down the couple's Buick. They found bullet holes in the seats and a 25 caliber shell casing resting behind the driver's seat cushion. Bloodstains on the upholstery proved to be from Gina Murano and Karen Jones. Clark realized the evidence was mounting against him. In August of 1980, he began insisting that it was Carol and Jack who had committed the murders. He claimed that Carol killed Jack to prevent him from turning her in. And now she was framing Clark. But despite Clark's protestations of innocence, police kept finding more evidence of his murders. On August 26th, the mummified remains of a young woman were found in the Malibu Mountains, near the intersection of Tuna Canyon and Saddle Peak Road. This corresponded to a place that Clark had once told Carol he had dropped off a body. Ballistics proved that this woman had been shot in the head with a 25 caliber gun. Unfortunately, the bullet was shattered and could not be positively traced to Clark's gun. On September 18th, Carol was arraigned. Her lawyer, Samuel Mayerson, moved to have her confession excluded on the grounds she was not informed of her rights. But this motion was overruled when Detective Landgren testified that he had tried to read the Miranda warning, but Carol wouldn't stop talking. By September, Carol felt guilty for turning Clark in. 
She wrote to him, ostensibly to apologize, but told him that he had brought this on himself by treating her badly. At the same time, she told her lawyer that she didn't want to make a deal with the prosecutor unless she could receive full immunity for her testimony. If prosecutors offered Carol immunity, it meant that none of the testimony she gave at Clark's trial could be used in her own trial. Clark was arraigned a month later, on November 13th. He faced five counts of murder in the first degree, three counts of child molestation, and an accessory after the fact charge for Jack's murder. He pleaded not guilty, and his trial date was set for January 19, 1981. At the pretrial hearing on December 9th, Clark complained to the presiding judge that the police were not following up on his theory that Jack Murray was the real killer and Clark was being framed. He asked to represent himself. The judge denied the request, but set a new trial date for March 30, 1981. As part of his defense strategy, Clark planned to use the fact that his victim Kathy's body had never been found as proof that Carol was lying in her confession. But his plan fell apart on March 3, 1981, when a Los Angeles deputy sheriff found Kathy's remains near Saugus in Santa Clarita. A month later, in April of 1981, Carol's lawyer received the results of her psych tests. Carol had a normal IQ of 106. Her personality tests indicated that she had poor judgment skills and did not learn from experience. Although she did show signs of insecurity and an exaggerated need for attention, she was not considered to be psychopathic. Despite her psych eval results, Carol discussed the possibility of an insanity plea with her lawyer. Carol's main concern about pursuing the plea was that she would no longer be a credible witness against Clark if the prosecutor wanted to make a deal. As Carol waited to see if prosecutors would offer her a deal in April of 1981, she heard rumors of a sex worker who had been stabbed in 1980 by a man who fit Clark's description. Carol contacted detectives about the incident, and they were able to locate Clark's first stabbing victim, Charlene Anderman. Charlene picked Clark out of a lineup, and on April 14th, Clark was charged with attempted murder. That same month in April of 1981, prosecutors offered Carol a deal. They would drop the charges against her for Kathy's murder if she testified against Clark. Carol refused. She still wanted full immunity. But another charge loomed over Carol's head. The district attorney's office wanted her tried under special circumstances. They argued that Carol killed Jack to prevent him from testifying against her. This charge almost guaranteed the death penalty. So Carol pursued her potential insanity defense. In July of 1981, Dr. Winifred Meyer submitted a report stating that Carol had been psychotic at the time of the crimes. Although Carol had known right from wrong, her mental illness made her unable to conform to the law or socially acceptable behavior. Meyer recommended Carol be put into a mental institution for the remainder of her life. But at the same time, Dr. Meyer also stated that Carol had stabilized in prison and was competent to stand trial. Meanwhile, Clark managed to delay his trial another year until October 1982. He had spent the last two years in prison studying law so he could defend himself. But his inexperience quickly showed. He wasted time asking witnesses pointless and overly detailed questions. He threatened them as well. When a witness named Danielle admitted that she withheld evidence until the trial because Clark knew her old address, Clark responded, quote, 
Would it surprise you today, Danielle, that I have your current address and telephone number, and I've had it since August 11th? End quote. Danielle was terrified and burst into sobs in front of the jury. But Clark's actual strategy for avoiding a conviction was far more twisted than simply intimidating witnesses, and his defense revolved entirely around Carol. On December 2nd, Clark began his defense by announcing that Carol and Jack were the real serial killers, and that Carol had framed him by killing Jack. Clark then made an even more astounding claim. He insisted that Carol Bundy believed that she was married to the infamous serial killer, Ted Bundy. Clark claimed that Carol had committed all the murders herself in an attempt to imitate Ted Bundy. And as part of Clark's bizarre defense strategy, he called Carol herself to testify for him. He fully believed that given their history, he could manipulate her while she was on the stand. But Clark was wrong. Carol had struck a deal with the prosecution and been granted the immunity that she wanted. As long as she told the truth, nothing she said about Clark could be used against her in her own trial. Carol told the court everything about Clark's murders, confirming the evidence that the prosecution had already presented. Clark desperately attempted to disrupt Carol's testimony by screaming profanities, and he was frequently removed from the courtroom. When Clark's lawyer asked Carol if she cut a deal for testifying against Clark, she replied, quote, If both people are responsible in a situation, I think that both people should face their responsibilities. I couldn't exchange one minute of Doug's life to save one minute of my own. End quote. Carol's testimony against Clark persuaded the jury. And on January 28, 1983, Clark was found guilty for all six counts of murder in the first degree and one count of attempted murder and mayhem. At the sentencing phase, Dr. Gloria E. Keyes took the stand. Keyes had interviewed Clark for over a hundred hours and diagnosed him as suffering from a personality disorder, an array of psychosexual disorders, and shared paranoia. Shared paranoia is also known as folie à deux. This disorder is the manifestation of a delusional idea shared by at least two people. Generally, a primary or dominant person passes their delusional beliefs on to a secondary person. In this case, Clark was the dominant person passing his delusional beliefs on to Carol. Keyes pointed to a letter Clark wrote Carol, where he said that by using his mind's bright star, he would change Carol from a mediocre housewife into whatever she wished. Keyes also diagnosed Clark as suffering from narcissistic and antisocial personality disorder, as we've seen in past episodes, sufferers of these disorders lack a conscience, don't feel guilty when they tell lies, and are prone to grandiose delusional beliefs. When asked if Clark was insane, Keyes said she preferred the terms impaired and dysfunctional. She also stated that Clark's necrophilia may have arisen due to his inability to relate to a parental figure. She explained that this might have caused him to view others as inanimate objects. But despite Clark's personality disorders, Keyes believed he was still grounded enough in reality to understand right from wrong. In a court of law, this meant that Clark was responsible for his murders. And on February 11th of 1983, Clark was sentenced to death. Carol's own trial was set to begin on May 2nd, 1983, but it never took place. She accepted a deal from the prosecutors and pled guilty to the first-degree murders of Jack Murray and Kathy, the unidentified sex worker. 
Before her sentencing, she was seen by multiple psychologists. Dr. Blake Skirla believed Carol identified with her abusive father and the killings were a compulsion to act out her childhood trauma. Another psychologist, Dr. Kaushal Sharma, disagreed. He believed Carol killed because of her unusual psychopathological need and sexual deviation. The judge took all of these psychological perspectives into account, and on May 31st, he sentenced Carol to two consecutive 25 years to life terms. She would have been up for parole in 2012, but she died in prison of heart failure on December 9, 2003. Douglas Clark is currently on death row in San Quentin State Prison. To this day, he still insists that Carol framed him. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Serial Killers, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by James Griggs and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.